Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. JBR Capital has sponsored the Intercooler podcast for several months now. You've probably heard me talk about the company before. In that time, I've come to really understand what it is that makes JBR Capital different to other car finance companies. If I had to boil it down to one thing, I'd say it's this. Car finance is all JBR Capital does. Might sound like a minor detail that, but in fact it's really important. It means JBR Capital has a profound understanding of the car marketplace and of car buyers, an understanding that other finance companies could only hope to have. In fact, that very focused approach is exactly why the company was started in the first place. We recently had Darren Seelig, founder of JBR Capital, on the podcast, episode 106, if you want to go back and listen. And he explained that he started the company when he realized that general finance lenders actually didn't understand cars or car buyers particularly well at all. So he spotted that gap in the market and he founded JBR Capital to fill it. So before you buy your next car, be it a supercar, sports car, classic car, hypercar or a luxury car, even if it's a brand new car, go and see what JBR Capital can do for you on the finance side. And it really helps us if you tell them that the intercooler sent you. JBR Capital is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 111 of the podcast, everybody. Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel with you. Um, Andrew, we in this podcast, we're going to get to do something that we only get to do once every 10 years. Okay? You look confused. That's the review a new Range Rover. I'm not talking oh, yeah, about, yeah, yeah. I'm not talking about yeah. a derivative or a facelift, yeah. but a brand new Range Rover. That only happens once every 10 years. So, wow. so we won't record a podcast like this for another decade. Imagine if we're still doing it then. Um, so we are talking about the new Range Rover. <laughs> well, we'll see. Yeah. Uh, we are talking about the new Range Rover. Um, and we, you've driven it. You've been driving the new car. So we'll have a proper deep dive into what this new one is like to drive. Um, but there's also been a lot going on in the world of cars this week. So before we get onto Range Rovers, we need to talk about a couple of other things. Um, should we start with the... Rather expensive Mercedes. The quite expensive Mercedes, yes. Perhaps underselling it a bit, because it's been confirmed now, hasn't it, that Mercedes has sold one of two Uhlenhaupt Coupés. Correct. Sold for £115 million, pounds, uh, making it officially the world's most valuable car. Now, it By might be... By an enormous be, margin. Yes, yeah. Yeah, well, it's more than doubled it, hasn't it? The official yeah. record. yeah. It's possible that other cars are trading hands for more money privately in the shadows that we don't know about. But publicly and officially, £115 million is a record. Um, so you've, we're not going to dwell on this. You have driven one. Is this the one you drove? Do you know? No, this is, this is the other one. So the they're, known one. As red and, okay. they're known as red and blue um, because of the colour of their upholstery. Uh, I drove blue and it's red that is sold. Um, yeah, I drove it um, not that long ago. I can't remember, five, six years ago. 
um, at their test track in Stuttgart. Um, one of the proudest moments of my career, I guess, because, you know, I think you can count on the fingers of one hand without troubling your thumb the number of people outside Mercedes-Benz who'd driven that car. Um, and yeah, I, I, I couldn't believe it. I could, and it was, it was every bit as amazing and extraordinary. It is, I think visually, I wouldn't say it's the, the, the most beautiful car, even though it is beautiful, but it is one of the most visually fascinating cars I've ever seen. The detailing on it, the way it just draws the eye, you know, you could, I mean, I did, I spent a very long time just looking at it and I'm not the sort of person who spends an awful lot of time looking at cars because I'd just frankly much rather be driving them. Um, and then to drive, it's, you know, it's, it's basically a mid fifties Formula One car. Um, because that's what the sports car was. It was a sports car version of the Formula One car they had and this one, but in coupe form. And it was every bit as amazing and extraordinary, incredible as that sounds and, and the privilege of that. And again, you know, no one said, Oh, you know, you, you know, don't do more than, you know, 4,000 revs. Don't go fast around corners. Don't, you know, they just said, go and drive it. Um, so I did. Absolutely amazing. How lucky. Yeah. Yeah. So these are very special cars, aren't they? They are, they are road legal. Um, and there are only two in existence. Mercedes had both. Now it clearly only has one. Um, 300 SLR coupes is what they're probably known as. Um, yeah. And uh, the question arose, why would Mercedes sell one of these cars? Why does it need the money? Somebody, just to put this into perspective, pointed out that the sale figure would just about or almost cover a year of Formula One, um, yeah. which is kind of extraordinary. But actually, there was an even better reason for selling it. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, the, if you think about the money, you think about the number, 115 million, I mean, it's so extraordinary. It, it's almost one of those numbers. It's like a bazillion, isn't it? If you actually think of you know, a million pounds and then you think of 115 of them, it is such an enormous amount of money, frankly, for anyone to pay for anything, but for, for a single car, um, it almost defies belief. But we are told, in fact, I've been told by someone who absolutely ought to know, and it is kind of there in a press release, but every single penny of that is going to go into financing. I mean, I think Mercedes is effectively going to finance educational programs around the world through this sort of foundation they set up to encourage young people um to study stem su- subjects and to become go on to become you know the engineers the the world's going to need in the future and it's um you know i think it's quite easy to be cynical about this because you know manufacturers put out press releases about this and they always try to spin these things the right way but actually you know if that's what all the money is going for that's what all the money is going to you know they're not going to lie about that so you know as far as i can see you know absolutely hats off to them because i thought they're going to do it because you know, developing electrical architectures for the next generation of EVs is so bloody expensive and they got two of these things. They thought, well, actually, we could take a big chunk out of the budget for well, you know, by, by getting rid of it. Not that at all. Um, so from everything that I've seen and everything I've heard, um, and I do know some people who are quite close to what's been going on, um, it's been, you know, they've done the right thing for the right reasons. And, um, you know, I can only applaud them for it. Amazing car. Amazing car. And it's been sold for a brilliant reason as well. So actually, I think it's very commendable. Um, okay, well, that's the Uhlenhaupt Coupe. Let's move it on. BMW M4 CSL. Now, recently on the podcast, we spoke about... There was a teaser image, wasn't there, that revealed nothing at all except that there would be an M4 CSL part of BMW M's 50th anniversary celebrations. And we spoke about what that kind of... What the car might be and how it might be different to a GTS. We There was the M4 GTS last time around, the M3 GTS before then... Um, and we wondered if BMW was just reprising the CSL name because it's the 50th anniversary and, in it, and it's an iconic badge, or was there a particular reason for using CSL and not GTS? Now, this line from the press release, I have to be honest, my heart sank when I read it. The new BMW M4 CSL has track driving as its raison d'etre. They built a track car. And you and I both said, didn't we, wouldn't it be lovely if they didn't build a track car, but instead built something a bit subtler, absolutely optimised for the road to be enjoyable at road speeds, um, focusing more light weighting than on power and grip. Um, And, well, they've done something different. That's not what they've decided to do at all. Um, Another thing that demonstrates 
what BMW wants to do with this car is that they've quoted a Nürburgring time, 7 minutes 20. Um, that's the fastest lap time ever for a series production BMW. Um, but it's still, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that they've, they've decided to play the Nürburgring game because I'm afraid, so it's an awful thing to say, but when I see a stripped-out two-seat high-performance car like that and I think Nürburgring lap time, you know, the, f- the first figure that comes into your head begins with a six now, doesn't it, these days? I mean, I know it's ridiculous because 7.20 is a really, really fast time. Um, but, you know, BMW must have known, particularly given the way they've chosen to price it and the fact that they've taken the rear seats out, um, that everyone's just going to compare it to a 911 GT3, aren't they? You know, they, they cost, you know, they're within their prices within £3,000 of each other and, you know, and they seem to have gone down exactly the same road with it uh, in terms of, you know, taking out the research, making the car lighter um, and so on. But it's 20 seconds a lap slower. Cool. And why would, so I don't, I don't understand why you draw attention to that. Um, it's a good if, point. You know, if, if you're going to be, if you're going to play the Nürburgring game, you know, play it with the right cards or, or, or just opt out of the game. So... It's strange. It's curious. Um, and, and that's despite the fact, and this is, I think, is probably as good an indicator as the kind of car that BMW has created as anything, despite the fact that it comes as standard on Cup 2 R's. Not Cup 2's, Cup 2 R's, which are, I'm sure you know, everybody listening to this will know, are pretty much the most extreme road legal, street legal um, tyre you can get. Um, and they're just designed, they're just grip generators, aren't they? They're just designed for, you know, um, you know they have a they have a very sharp peak and then they actually plateau and behave themselves for a while. But you know on that lap when they're absolutely fresh, um, they give phenomenal levels of grip for a street legal tire. Um, so in the dry, yeah, I mean, should we, should we, sorry, in, <laughs> in the, the dry, in the yes, 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 best left parked when it's wet. <laughs> um, are we going to run through some of the headlines? Yeah, so let's do that now. I, I saw something interesting in the press release. BMW says CSL stands for Competition Sport Lightweight. Well, it used to be Coupe Sport Lightweight, didn't it? Um, so that's changed. I wonder if that's because CS has actually been used on four-door cars, which are not coupes. I wonder if they've adjusted what the C stands for for that reason. Um, they've taken 100 kilograms out, no rear seats, carbon ceramic brakes, lighter wheels, carbon front seats, reduced sound insulation, part titanium exhaust. Um, so it's 100 kilograms lighter than an M4 Comp, but the EU figure is still 1,700 kilograms. So it's still a chunky yeah. thing. Um, 40 more I mean, I mean, that, I mean, that's the thing. Okay, I mean, I, t- I tend to... I mean, it doesn't really matter, I guess, whether you use EU or DIN or figures, um, so long as you're consistent above the board. I tend to use DIN figures, which I think are 70, 75 kilograms. I mean, but it's 1625, isn't it? Yeah. Um, DIN, yeah. But, you know, CSL, in what way is a 1,625 kilo car in any way light? It's not. It's lighter. So maybe that's what it should be. You know, maybe that should be competition of sports lighter. Um, but it's still not, it's still, you know, it's still not a light car, is it? Um, no. And also, you know, 100 kilograms, you know, pff, okay, it's 100 kilograms. But, you know, if you look at what they've done, it's, you know, clearly, you know, rear seats out, carbon seats in, um, ceramic brakes that's the majority of it there it's um you know it's less than they took out the e46 csl both in terms of wow. proportionally and mm. also actually i think this i think someone's going to come and tell me i'm wrong i think the e46 was 110 kilos lighter than um than the standard uh m3 of that era so i don't know. i mean i know that an awful lot of people are going to look at that Nurburgring lap time, look at the price, uh, look at the fact that it's still got an eight-speed automatic gearbox in it. Yeah. Yeah? An auto. Uh, yeah. An auto. Not a DCT, an automatic gearbox. Um, and they're going to think, well, you know, how seriously should we take that? I mean, all I would say to everybody who, uh, and, and to be fair, we did um, tweet something about it uh, when the news came out, and, and the response has n- has not been positive people i think funnily enough focusing mainly on the on its appearance uh, we'll judge it when we drive it won't we mm. um that's all we can do is we'll drive it and we'll tell you exactly what we think of it um without fear or favor and whether it is worthy of that badge i think it's only the third time they've used it isn't it it is third time so it's a big deal 
Um, yeah, it's a big deal. I mean, that you are you are making a promise there, aren't you? You know, and it's interesting that you know in the past it was a GTS, wasn't it? They they, they kind of shied away from it, mm. but this is this is them going okay. We did it 50 years ago, we did it 20 years ago, and we're doing it again now. You know, watch out, guys. Here we come. So you better deliver. Seriously. So they're building 1,000. Um, 100 yep. will come to the UK at 129 grand each. That's a chunk. Um, and so I've looked at the, the ways that it's different to an M4 GTS, or an M3 GTS for that matter. Um, and it comes down to three things. The CSL's got no cage. It's got no rear wing. It's got no manually adjustable suspension. So that's it. But otherwise, it's the same recipe. Weight loss, very sticky tyres, bit more power, yeah. no rear yeah. seats, um, yeah. very lightweight competition-style front seats. It's, to be honest, it, it seems slavish to me. You know, they've said, we're going to do a CSL version, and it just a- appears to me like they've defaulted to the same stuff that they defaulted to when they did the GTSs. It's like there's no particular imagination. Let me give you my recipe for what an M4 CSL might have looked like. Looked like. So there would be a, a strict weight loss program, like there has been, but take it as far as you can. It would have a manual gearbox. It would yeah. have no well, you'd say, more you'd, power. You'd save a stack of weight there, wouldn't you? Stack of weight. It would have no more power. Maybe even yeah. it would have the lower power output of the non-competition model. Um, it would have Pilot Sport 4S tyres, which yeah. on the road in the dry generate bundles of grip, but well, I mean they used to, they they generate as much grip as an old cup as 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 a as a old cup tire did. Yeah, so they're that good. Yeah, but they also but they, work when it's wet, which means you cold. can use the car more often. You can enjoy yeah. it more often. Yeah, I'd have nineteen inch wheels all round. The CSL has twenties on the rear. I'd have no cage and no wing, like the CSL. To be fair, but it would be tuned very specifically for the road. It would be supple. It would feel agile. It would be engaging and rewarding at moderate speeds. I wouldn't quote a Nürburgring lap time because that just <sighs> defines the character of the car, actually. It's not what it's for. Yeah. And I think the market now is mature enough to appreciate a car like that, a subtler, sort of slightly more low-key approach. You know, you just need to see how, um, how other cars with manual gearboxes that are road-optimized, they're in demand now. Um, and the fact of the matter is, they're only building a thousand. It's got a CSL badge on it. They're going to sell. They're going to go. Um, and it, you know, if they'd gone down that route, they could have done a GTS later on, and they, they could have. Yeah. And the, you know, the curious thing is that it isn't as though the previous M4 GTS is <clears throat> is really sought after. Okay, it cost 120 grand new. Thirty came to the UK. And you can pick wow. one up now for 85. Is that right? Yeah. But then we yeah. all gave it a massive kicking, didn't we? It looks as though they've just done the same thing. Um, I don't know. As you say, the proof is in the pudding. We'll wait until we drive it. And let's remember that the M5 CS is a stonking car that doesn't seem to make much sense on paper. Um, perhaps, the, yeah. perhaps the M4 CSL will surprise us. I mean, but, but I mean, clearly... A lot because I mean, let's not forget it's it's fifty thousand pounds. It's a and I knew I'd find a way of getting it into this podcast. An Alpine A one ten more expensive than an M four comp. Yeah, that's a lot of money. And if you look at what that's buying you in purely mechanical terms, that's not fifty thousand pounds there. So what you're buying is the exclusivity. That's why they can get away. That's why they think they can get away with charging that amount of money for it. And you know, I don't have a problem with that at all. I think it's absolutely fair enough. Um, but if you think it's going to be £50,000 worth better performing, again, we'll judge it when we see it. But my strong hunch is that you're going to be in for a bit, for, for something of a disappointment. Then again, if you want, you know, and if you, know, if you look at the values of E46 N3 CSLs, and let us not forget that car did not escape without criticism at the time. Um, you know, lots of us, me included, um, piled in about the SMG gearbox. Um, which and people get upset with me. One in particular, I know if I say this, but still um, compromises the car. Um, but, you know, that hasn't stopped that car becoming an extremely valuable car. And the original CSL, the Batmobile from 1972 or whenever it was, I mean, they are you know truly valuable motor cars. So, you know, maybe that badge has a magic to it. Maybe, or maybe 
and I absolutely don't rule this out, the BMW found the sweet, has found a sweet spot. They've done to this what they did to the M5 um, CS. Um, and it's not going to be like the GTS, which was a truculent, difficult, um, to me, just unpleasant car to drive. Uh, I can remember driving an M4 GTS um, and... I think it might have even just been a standard M2 because I'm not sure the comp was out there, but whatever it was, um, on road, on track up in North Wales and just so preferring the M2. So, you know, maybe they think, okay, well, the GTS, maybe that went a bit far and maybe they have tuned it so that it does have, you know, good road ability. But why would you put it on Cup 2Rs as standard though? I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? Because they're chasing that Nürburgring lap time. It's it's as though they can't help themselves. what, but you're, why chasing, matter, you're chasing though? what they're so far away from, you know, yeah. a, a Nurburgring lap time, which is going to get anyone's interest these days. You know, when you've got a standard GT3, not a GT2 RS or a GT, even a GT3 RS, but a standard GT3 going sub seven, who's going to get excited about, you know, a car built around the same sort of philosophical, philosophical uh, means, costing the same amount of money, going 20 seconds slower? Even if you are one of those sort of Nurburgring, you know, lap time addicts and junkies, which I'm not, absolutely. Um, it just seems a strange way to go. So it's, it actually makes it all the more interesting because I'm actually more interested in this car than I was before. Because I don't, from the formula, I don't quite see where they've gone with it, um, which means we'll find out when we drive it, which is great. Yeah. yeah, it seems to me like they haven't been able to resist all the usual temptations and they've just ticked a load of boxes. Rather yeah. than really thinking, how can we make this special? But as you say, we'll find out when we drive it. Okay, let's move it on Range Rover then. Um, so I think we should rattle through a little bit of history on the Range Rover, just to give this new car context. So it was in the late 60s that engineers Gordon Bashford and Spen King, Charles Spencer King, um, yeah. CSK. At were, were, were fiddling, were wondering what to do, um, wondering what a bigger alternative to the Land Rover might look like. Um, and so the first Range Rover prototype was built in 1967 and the design finalised in 1969. Um, there was a curious story, wasn't there? Because 26 Villar-badged engineering development cars were built between 69 and 70. And they actually, to, what, what was the purpose of this? To throw the press off? They registered Villar as a company in its own right and badged the cars Villar in the hope that people wouldn't actually know what these things were as they were running around the roads. Disguised. Are you looking for me some time in response <laughs> to this? I have absolutely okay. no idea. <laughs> well, that is what happened. Um, and uh, the car was launched in 1970. Um, and it remained in production for 25 years, that original yeah. one. Which is just bananas. It's, it, it, it is one of those cars, isn't it? I, I, I'm a sort of... <laughs> I love looking at cars which have the reputation um, for being the absolute first that created the class that they're in. <laughs> and in almost every single case, it's not true. The Golf GTI was not the first hot hatch. The original Land Rover was not the first 4x4. The Renault Espace was not the first MPV. And the Range Rover was not the first luxury SUV. That was, I think, called the Jeep Wagoneer. Jeep, maybe a Jeep Grand Wagoneer, actually, um, which beat it by at least two or three years. Um, but I think it can still be regarded, can't it, as the father of the luxury SUV and not just the Range Rovers of today that I've just been driving, but, you know, everybody else who's got a big posh luxury SUV. Uh, that's, where, that's where it started. That's where that idea of being able to have your cake and eat it, having a car which you can tow your horse box around with will get you across um, anything from a muddy field to the Darien Gap, frankly, um, and yet still retain sufficient comfort and refinement to be a true, not just a usable everyday car, but a desirable car to use every day. Um, it's amazing it took that long to, uh, to, to happen, really. But you know, back then, I mean, there were limitations, weren't there? You know, you, you, that Range Rover of 1970, it still had a ladder chassis. It still had um, live axles at both ends. You know, and that kept going because it was believed that that's what you had to have to have that off-road ability. 
Um, and, you know, even the Discovery, even the, the, the first generations, first two generations of Discoveries had live axles at both ends. And they are very, very limiting in terms of what you can achieve with ride comfort and everything else. So I expect that's why it took until 1970 for someone to really have that idea and pursue it. But, you mean, that first generation, absolutely. Um, a wonderful car. And I think it's one of those cars, and I'm not sure people even realised how great it was at the time because i'm sadly old enough to kind of remember it and range rovers were yeah they're quite cool things to have a to, to have and you know i can remember when they entered when the 3.5 v8 became the 3.9 v8 and the two-door shell became the four-door shell and they got abs and various other modifications then right at the end they did that the lse the long one on the air springs with the 4.2 liter v8 and, and and everything else um and, you know, and we admired its longevity and the fact that it was still selling and everything else. But I, I think now looking back at it, I think it's one of those cars that has kind of acquired greatness after its uh, after its death. Um, I think it's a car that history has been kinder to than we were at the time. Not that anybody was unkind to it at the time. We just thought it was, you know, a quite cool, quite competitive product. And, you know, we, we liked it. It was out there and we put its longevity down to the fact there was nothing else like that out there. Um I think it's only now that we look back on it uh, and realise, actually, it was a landmark. It was an absolute landmark. And we look at all the stuff that's come off the back of it for both uh, for Land Rover and, and everybody else who's piled onto the bandwagon ever since. Um, and we can see that in the history of the car, you know, its line is a very significant entry, isn't it? Indeed. Um, I just want to dive a little bit into this luxury SUV thing, because certainly in the very early years... I mean, it was upmarket compared to a Land Rover, which was not difficult. But actually, it was still a comparatively utilitarian thing. So it had vinyl seats, plastic dashboards. Um, yeah. And things like power steering, carpets, aircon, cloth or leather upholstery, wood, that stuff only came later on. Yeah. So it's, it's as though this, this luxury 4x4 concept sort of evolved over those early years. Yeah, but what it did have... Um you know, if you think of the Land Rovers that they're producing back then, um, they were extremely robust. They were leaf sprung and very, very stiff. Yeah. Uh, and the Range Rover had this completely different philosophy. It was coil sprung and had very long travel suspension. Um, and so it would just kind of glide over everything. And that gave it a, not don't like this word, but nevertheless, a plushness to... Um, to the way it went from place to place that no Land Rover could ever hope to have. And it gave it that kind of veneer of luxury. And I, I think it's very interesting, isn't it? Because it didn't really start out at the kind of car that we now um, recall it to be. But you could see that they were thinking about it. And I think yeah. they suddenly realised they had something and then thought, well, now we're going to see how far we can go in that direction. And so mm-hmm. they started doing things like putting power steering on it, making an automatic gearbox an option and that sort of thing. But... All I, but I would say, even so, that if you take a 90, early 70s Range Rover and compare it to an early 70s Land Rover, I mean, the Range Rover is over halfway to an S-Class. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, than it is to, yeah, it's closer to an S-Class than a Land Rover, even then. Um, so it wasn't replaced by the second generation model, the P38A, until the mid-90s. Um, yeah. Can I say that? Can I, can I say something about that? Go on. Oh, because I mean, I was a motoring journalist there, and I was on auto car when it was replaced. Yeah, um, and we got that car so wrong. <laughs> oh, um, I, I didn't because I happened not to be involved in it. So, I, so uh, you know, I'm, not, I'm sounding smug, I guess, but um, I don't mean to. It was just, it was a poor car. It really was. Um, it didn't advance the art particularly. Um, it was poorly built um not that reliable not not good looking at all to me and you know coming on the back of such a an amazing machine uh and and yet at autocar we praised it to the heavens and i just i've I've always just felt a bit uncomfortable about that um you know it was i'm sure the honest view of whoever it was who did the test and you know and that's absolutely fine but when i look back over all the things autocar got 98 percent of stuff right it still does um and its hit rate is probably better than anybody else's but we we absolutely didn't get that one right interesting it ties into what we were talking about last week doesn't it how i mean how many years was the p38 in production for compared only to the, six six years compared to 27 well there you go that tells you what you mm. need to know doesn't it 
So yeah, in 2001, it was replaced by the third generation model, the L322. Um, and that, and yeah. that was absolutely extraordinary. Much that more car, modern design, um, and it, uh, it really moved up market then as well, didn't it? That car, that car actually set the template for the Range Rover today. I can remember Land Rover at the time belonged to a thing called the Premier Autom- Automotive Group, which was run by a bloke called Wolfgang Reitzler, an amazing um, charismatic German businessman. Um, and I can remember going to the launch, which I think was in some sort of posh East London warehouse or something. Um, and he came up on stage and started to talk about this thing. They spent a billion pounds developing this thing. And oh, more than 20 years. It was, you know, back then. And, you know, I, go and look at one. Look at, I can remember looking at the interior of it. And they had, the, the, the way they used the wood in the interior, it was almost like the wood was structural. It was like you had tree trunks growing through the middle of the car. Um, it was so cleverly done. The car was beautiful. Um, it was incredibly well engineered. Uh, it, was, it was everything the P38A wasn't. It was in 2001, I think, every, big as, every bit as significant of an, an event in the history of the Range Rover as the original had been in 1970. That was the replacement for the original Range Rover, not the really very disappointing stopgap that, you know, that came between them. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was fabulous thing. It drove beautifully. Um, you just felt proud to be in. I mean, I see them today because um, there's still lots and loads of them knocking about. Um, and every time I see one, I just think that's a really cool car. Mm. I was bowled over by them as a kid when I was, when they were new. Yeah. I just thought that yeah. is it. I'd have one of those and some sort of sports car, and I'd be very happy. Um, yeah, and so it, that hung hung around for just over a decade. And we saw the fourth generation Range Rover, the L four hundred five, in September twenty twelve at the Paris Motor Show, all aluminium. Um, so it's lighter than the previous one. Land Rover claimed, didn't they, that it was up to four hundred kilos lighter. Um, depending on the model and I think lots of us reported that but actually when you weigh them um, not so much it probably probably lighter like for like but actually this is a good time because our mate Stuart Gallagher posted a photo of Dean Smith's Range Rover L405 on the scales at 2.7 tons (laughs) he said 40 kilograms of camera equipment half a tank of fuel but two thousand seven hundred kilograms. Yeah, but so. but that's what but that's what um, you know a disco four weighs or a disco three. You know, they're oh, all chunky, around the two, two six two seven two two eight mark. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a lot of car. It's a lot well, of car. Load one up with people and stuff, yeah. and that's three tons on the road. <laughs> Absolutely uh, amazing. Absolutely, license. but they're brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I, went, I took one up to Scotland last year um, and went sort of roaming around. Uh, and they, they, they have that... Obviously, when you're sort of up there in the middle of absolutely nowhere and it's blowing a gale and the rain's coming in horizontally um, and you're on these itty-bitty roads and if anything comes the other way, you've basically got to drive into a field to let them pass and everything. They, I mean, they just work so well because you're sat in there, you're warm, you're cocooned, you're comfortable. Um, you kind of feel immune to the forces of the outside world. Um, and that is, I think, increasingly what a Range Rover should be. And I can remember driving that, knowing that the new one was coming uh, and thinking to myself, does this car feel in need of replacement? Not really. And that's, that's surely the mark of a great car, isn't it? That it can be in production for, well, but it was in its 10th year of production back then and still feel absolutely competitive uh, a decade down the tracks. And it did. It was a really, really good car. It is amazing. You wrote yeah. something beautiful, actually, about the, uh, the, that previous model, the one that's just been replaced. You said that stepping into a Range Rover, particularly on this foul, you know, when the weather's foul, and you're perhaps in a bad mood, you step into a Range Rover, it is like when you've been on holiday in some developing world country, travelling around for a week or two on rickety local transport. Yeah. Um, and that has a charm of its own, but at some point it, it wears thin, doesn't it? And stepping into a Range Rover was like then pulling up to a dusty airfield to see a British Airways 747 waiting for you and feeling like you're already home. Yeah, that's it, Perfect. isn't it? Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, there aren't any British Airways 747s anymore, but the point stands, isn't it? It's, I can totally understand that feeling of being safe and comfortable long before you get home. Yeah. Um, which brings and us on, I suppose. that's a very special magic, isn't it? Yeah, so it brings us on to the new one. Yeah, the L460, yeah. a decade later. Um, yeah. Evolutionary design, really, similar construction. Um, and before we actually get on to what it's like to drive... Um, I just want to cover this off again because it's very pertinent. Um, two points, actually. We have discussed this before, but I will just go through it again. The Range Rover is a freak. In the, in the marketplace, it's a freak, okay? There is no other car that sells for £100,000 plus, and even the previous one, once it had been specced up, the average was much more than £100,000. No other car that sells for that price moves anything like as many units. At its peak in 2015... 60,000 Range Rovers were sold in 2015, one year. That's £6 billion in revenue in a year. <laughs> you see how crucial the car is to it's JLR. It's quite good, isn't it? Yeah. So nothing, nothing that sells for more than 100 grand gets close to those volumes. Um, it is also the case that for a long time, the Range Rover more or less had that market to itself, that super luxury off-roader thing to itself. Not true anymore, yeah. is it? Everyone no. else with an upmarket badge has left Everyone's on that bad in. Yeah. But... It, is that going to do any harm to the Range Rover's sales figures? I don't know. It doesn't seem to be. I don't think it will. I don't think it will because I think they've expanded the size of the market. Um, and I think you'll find that, you know, people tend to be, instead of not buying Range Rovers to buy a rival big SUV, what they're actually doing is they're not buying big saloons um, instead and getting in them. Uh, so I think I think the size of the market has got... So it's interesting what you're saying about the transaction price of the previous model which was just over a hundred thousand pounds do you know what the expected trans average transaction price of a new the new one's going to be 150 100 125 okay <laughs> right okay, okay. so that's a, that's a decent jump yeah so so it's a decent so, so now most people will spend 120 and um you know i can remember times when what did they do they did a. Was it when they did the extended wheelbase version of the previous one? Well, the first one to whatever the first Range Rover was to break, breach six figures, which was a fully loaded autobiography, and they were really nervous about that because I mean that's a big glass ceiling, um, and they didn't know whether the Range Rover brand was strong enough <laughs> to command a hundred thousand pound price tag. Yeah, and now the average. It's going to be 125. Onwards and upwards, eh? I mean, and as you say, the volumes, I mean, the revenues. I mean, and thank goodness for that, because, you know, in other ways, you know, JLR as a company, you know, Jaguar is effectively a moribund brand at the moment. It's not going to, not doing anything at all and won't do anything of any significance until 2025. So that's like this huge land anchor that Land Rover has to drag around behind it. Um, and, you know, they, they have nothing like, I mean, I've always, I've always said that JLR is absolutely the wrong size for a car company to be because it's not sort of small and boutique and, you know, and terribly exclusive. And they're not selling millions either. So they have the vast economies of scales. It's, it, it, is, it is absolutely, in my view, the, the wrong size for a car company to be. But then again, if you can sell 60,000 Range Rovers for, you know, 125 grand each. You're doing okay, aren't you? Wowzers. Thank um, goodness for the Range Rover. So I haven't driven it. I was supposed to go on the launch in California, but we got to Heathrow got on the plane, taxi for 10 minutes, stopped. Pilot said, yeah, we're not going anywhere. Back to the terminal. Oh, I didn't realise you'd actually got on the plane. We got on the plane and it moved. It was almost on the runway. Um, what happened? Uh, Did it go tech on you? It, got, it went tech. It's something to do with an air conditioning compressor. There is um, a, a backup, so there is redundancy built in. But the pilot said, I'm not prepared to fly without a backup, which is the right thing to do. He, he said, there was a lovely expression. It's better to be, in aviation, it's better be, to be on the ground wishing you were in the air than in the air wishing you were on the ground. You were on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just so, a bit. When he said that, he, I thought, okay, well, I'm cl- quite happy to be getting off this thing. Um, yeah, so after hanging around at Heathrow for 30 hours, I decided, oh, I'm just going to go home then. Um, so I missed that launch. Uh, but okay. never mind, because you've driven it in the UK which is better, yeah, actually. I, did, I didn't drive in California. No. I drove it in Gloucestershire. Oh, um, there you go. It's nice yeah, when and, a car and, launches in the county you live in, isn't it? 
yeah and a bit of monster as well, well I, I drove it the route came with and i'm not joking i might have popped home to put another load of washing on actually um, <laughs> the, the route came within three quarters of a mile of my front door Bloody um, hell. so Fantastic. yes i wish i'd known that at the time i would have but I, I, would, I would have planned it but anyway um so they only had um d350s there so we know don't we that there's a uh, there's a petrol version which has a, a BMW V8 in it. Um, there's a plug-in hybrid which is coming later in the year. There's a low-powered diesel D300, but the only ones they had uh, were D350s, and they didn't have any long wheelbase cars, um, so they didn't have any seven-seat cars. So I have driven one example. Now that example happens to be the one that will sell most in the UK, um, and. I don't mean it to be damning with faint praise, but it is exactly what I thought it would be. Um, it is, they have taken the Porsche 911 uh, approach to it. It is, to a previous Range Rover, what a 992 is to a 991. It is entirely evolutionary, both visually, and it is genuinely better at basically everything. What it is not is what the Range Rover was in 1970 or indeed what it was again in 2001. It is not a, oh my God, this has just completely reset the, 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 the standards by which all these cars are going to be judged. Um, it, is, it is a really good, thorough, modern, comprehensive um, reiteration of Range Rover values. It's a really good car, but it is not a landmark in the way that those two previous ones i mentioned are it is the best range rover there's people say this is the best range rover there's ever been well, of course it is and if it wasn't can you imagine if it wasn't i never understand why they people say it's the best whatever when they're talking about an all-new car where they've had you know 10 years of technological advance in which to make it better um yeah fine i'm you know but but, so, but is it fully competitive against its competitor set today absolutely Absolutely, it is. Um, you know, I haven't driven it against a. I suppose it's close to compared to be. I saw something like a Bentayga, I suppose. Um, but it has. I did do quite a lot of reasonably serious. We, we went to Eastern Castle, where Land Rover develop all their cars for you know, off-roading, and we went around some of the woods and forests there, and it was quite interesting. We went through some of the quite tricky stuff. But none of the stuff that I'd gone through a few weeks earlier with um, with the the intercooler Defender, um, which is really bloody hardcore. Um, mm. It's nevertheless it was enough to show that this is you know this is, obviously it's a highly capable off roader you know and you know they've it's still got a low range transfer box in it and all the you know all the widgets and gadgets and stuff that you need to help you in that environment um, you know full you know surround camera systems wading depth inclinometers um everything that you could ever want to to help and all the different um driving modes um and out on the road it's a lovely it's a lovely thing to be in it's it is quiet it's comfortable i mean it, it sounds boring because i wish i could say there was a wow moment there wasn't there wasn't a single wow moment there were it was a big long moment of deep contentment hmm. actually dan you know what that car's like to drive because if you imagine what you think a 2022 range rover would be like given your extensive knowledge of the predecessor that is exactly what it is like it is exactly what you'd hope it would be um but it is not in any way beyond your wildest dreams it is it's a very predictable car in exactly the same way the 992 is over a 991 um and i'm not really sure i can add an awful lot to it than that it's a it's a really really good car but i don't think that in a hundred years time when someone writes the history of the range rover i don't think they're going to be they're going to have it up there like they did with the original or the or the, or the 2001 car whatever it is 322 is it yes yeah. that's very interesting yeah. what about ride and refinement is have they made good progress there or is it just a bit yeah better. they have um i mean there was a bit of wind noise um and i i think a few other people have commented on that um you know uh, so i mean i happened to turn up there in an s-class mercedes um and in both terms of ride and refinement 
it's not as good as S-Class Mercedes. But, you know, it, it, frankly, it never was going to be. Um, you know, it has to, you know, they sit on tyres which are designed to go on, on and off-road. Um, they've got a stack more frontal area. It's further off the ground. Um, it's, you know, it's got a tougher job to do and it does it really well. Is the riding refinement good enough for that kind of car? Absolutely. Is it as good as it could possibly be? Absolutely not. Um, I would say that the refinement is it's difficult to say, isn't it, without having the old one? But I, I wouldn't say it was massively improved over the old one. I would say the ride is better. It does that thing that airspring cars do, is the ride gets better the faster you go. Um, so if you're knocking along a country lane at 40, 50, 60 miles an hour, um, it rides really, really well. If you're picking it around town, it's a bit... It's a bit lumpy, but airsprung cars tend to be. What is really good about it, which I loved, is the four-wheel steering on it because it's actually proper four-wheel steering. They say it's got, it's got something like the turning circle of a, of a Focus or a Golf or something. Um, and so when you are manoeuvring it around town, trying to park it, and so that actually makes it... The rear, ter- rear wheels turn by seven and a half degrees, mm, which is a lot. lot. It's a lot. And that really does make the car feel um, a lot more manageable. Um, the interior is is beautiful again it's not groundbreaking but it's it's really i mean i i actually i wish there were still a few sort of you know chunky physical things that you could you know just give that car the sense of heft but it's not it's one of those it's a very clean minimalist um dash um and the new pivi pro entertainment as we as we've discussed um in reference to the defender um i mean it's been updated again it's the screen's bigger in the in the range rover but that's, you know, it's fully competitive. It's not the best system that's out there, but it doesn't annoy the hell out of you like the previous system did. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a really nice thing to knock about in. Uh, would I, would I have that over an S class? I think it just depends on the, on the user purpose. If I needed to tow anything or if I was worried about, you know, getting cut off or weather or, you know, any of the reasons that anybody might want an SUV other than going, oh, look at me, I drive an SUV, um, then I think you probably would. I think in a pure uh, dynamic assessment, I would say that, you know, an S-Cast is still, you know, those sort of twin pillars of luxury car identity, ride and refinement. An S-Cast is still better in both those regards, but it's not night and day. Um, and the Range Rover is, is certainly more than good enough. So, I really, really like the car, um, but I wasn't totally bowled over by it. Mm, interesting. Well, it sounds like they've done what they needed to do with it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to having a go. Um, and we haven't even discussed the derivatives, the Evoque, the Velar, and of course we saw the new Sport very, very recently, didn't we? With yep. much more differentiated looks to the to the yep. Range Rover. I understand. I understand the response to the Sport's been amazing. They're very excited about that. Yeah, mm. they're very excited about that. Good. Well, um, there we go. Look forward to driving that as well. Um, yeah. Well, we'll leave it there. That's that's the Range Rover. Yeah, special thing, actually. Um, okay, so we will do the listener question in a moment, but I will just say thank you to JBR Capital for sponsoring the podcast. Um, well, there you go. If you're buying a Range Rover, maybe go and see what JBR Capital can do for you on the finance side. Um, please rate and review the podcast and also subscribe or follow wherever you listen to or watch the podcast, that really helps. Um, Ben McCarthy has got this week's listener question, fairly long one, and it potentially ties into what we were talking about earlier. I was considering some of the comments made on the most recent pod, a recent pod, about sports cars becoming ever bigger and heavier, acknowledging what Andrew and Dan said about car companies knowing their audience best and these heavier cars clearly not deterring people who actually pay the money. Would one of the sports car makers... Porsche, for instance, ever consider a new model, a 911, or if it's BMW, an M3 or M4, with a reduced footprint, a slightly less power, and slightly less power than the current model. It would favour both their emissions issues and also make for a more unique and better driving package. Would they ever do it? Doubt it. Not a company like that. I mean, Porsche did it. You know, they 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 used to do it, didn't they, with the old club sports, with the you know the 911, the 968 club sports. I mean, 968 club sport was actually cheaper than the standard car um, in the mid 90s. Um, but it would be a very low volume car. It would probably never recover its development costs. Um, so it would be a kind of a sort of slightly strange 
uh, car to produce, I think it would probably do the brand some good. I think that people like you and I would look, write lovely things about it and say how amazing it would be. But, you know, we wrote all that stuff about the Alpine A110, which is, you know, doing exactly that sort of thing. Um, and they've struggled to sell. So, you know, I'm afraid it's a lovely idea. There's nothing I'd like a company like BMW or Porsche to do more than that. I think it's exactly what I would like them to do. But as we said on this podcast so many times, you know, people like us, you know, Dan, me and all of you guys listening to this, um, we don't think in the same way um, as the typical customers for those cars think. And there are far more of them than there are of us. Um, and, the, and the manufacturers can't be blamed um, for doing what most of their customers want them to do. And it's not small, low-powered, smaller footprints, more environmentally um, conscious cars like that. It's, you know, it's more, 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 you know, quantity over quality every time, sadly. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. That It would be great if they did. Come on, guys. But, come on, Porsche, BMW. Anyways, prove us wrong. Just yeah, do it. I just can't see it happening. Uh, well, no. there you go. Thank you, Ben, for sending in your question. Please get your questions in because we love ending the podcast with a listener question. Um, and we'll yeah. be back next week. Before that. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.